0: The Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome to Talking Direction, the behind-the-scenes podcast going deep into the world of theater, film, television, and online content to celebrate directors. Those visionary artists at the center of plays, musicals, movies, and TV shows enjoyed around the world. Each week, we welcome acclaimed guests to explore imagination, risk-taking, and craft as well as looking at the past, present, and future of the creative industries. Don't forget to like, subscribe, wherever you find your podcast. We're available on all platforms or by visiting dramaleague.org. Thanks for listening and for talking direction.
1: Hi, I'm Danny Sharon. I've been a theater director for 15 years. Something that I constantly find myself wrestling with is my relationship to money. It's something that I've had to spend a lot of time and energy navigating. This was especially true in the beginning stages of my career. But as I've gotten older, I found that this relationship hasn't really gone away. It's just evolved. But there's one underlying issue that has been true for me since the start. So few people have ever spoken frankly to me about the financial hardships of pursuing a career in the theater, even less through the lens of a director. In March of last year, when the pandemic forced the doors of theaters across the world to close and I, along with many others, lost my job, I couldn't help but spend a great deal of time thinking about the complicated relationship that all of us in the theater community have with money. And for the sake of the future of this field, how important it would be to try to find a way to make financial conversations more transparent and less taboo moving forward. This has been a time of immense difficulty and uncertainty, but I thought that if people were willing to be open about their struggles, we might just have a chance to level the playing field and find a more inclusive and equitable way forward. Tony Award winner, friend, and mentor David Cromer was the first to sit down with me. Do you remember when, like, when you started to seriously think that I could actually have a career as a director?
2: I was always predisposed to this discipline, but I think I didn't know when I was very young. I've said, I have said don't think kids getting into theater really know there's a, such a thing as a director because the director is usually like a teacher.
1: Tony-nominated director Lee Silverman feels it's what she was born to do.
3: So for me... I had, as long as I can remember. Um, certainly, I was always um, in love with theater. knew I wanted to do theater. Um, had uh, went to college to study directing. Um, was always obsessed with being a director.
1: Sahimoe is a freelance director and an associate artistic director of the Public Theater. And his love for his craft is borderless.
4: In coming to the U.S. for college, um, I wasn't able to study directing because my parents were good, um, uh, you know, middle-class uh, Kenyan parents who would not condone that kind of um, uh, choice. So I came as a computer science major. Um, I switched my major to, to theater. I didn't tell my parents and uh, until like six months before graduation, and they were very upset, as you can probably imagine. Um, yeah, and but that was really like deciding to, 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 to change my course of study was like the moment when I really decided, you know, to do it. And then I uh, getting into grad school was the next step because um, I was an international student at the time. So I, I, I moved to New York to go to Columbia for directing. And so those are like the steps that just led to me deciding that I was really going to go for directing as a career.
1: Let's hold on a second. At this moment in life, a sane person would stop and say, why am I following a path that my parents don't approve of? One that I feel I need a backup plan for. In my case, a backup degree. If we all knew theater wasn't a cash cow, do we have a right to complain? Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Gabriel Stellion Shanks, artistic director of the Drama League, seemed to always have the bigger picture in mind.
5: I very rapidly realized that Directors held the world making in their hand, you know. If the playwright is the architect with the blueprint, the director is the builder, you know. And um, that was something I really uh, craved and wanted that that experience of laying out an entire world for an audience um, and telling stories in in three dimensions instead of on paper. So, I would say that transition happened. Um, Toward the end of my undergraduate degree, and and early on, I I think also I am coming of age during the AIDS epidemic, and my first professional jobs in Atlanta are jobs where I am surrounded by uh, actors and directors and designers and producers who either have AIDS or are uh, HIV positive, um, and so. I don't know, I guess I'm talking about 19 or 20 years old. I'm going to a funeral a week. I'm going to a hospital multiple times a week. And the plays I am doing are often in reaction to that. I'm a member of ACT UP. I'm a member of Queer Nation at that point. So the art making became a way to tell the story of our lives at that point. And really was more about trying to support my community and my friends and the world that I love so much more than a, you know, sustainable career. But that's also the privilege of being young, right? You don't have to think about those things when you're 19 and the way that you do later.
1: For others, like freelance director Colette Robert, deciding to be a director can come at any moment's notice without ever having to look back.
6: Yeah, it was my senior year of college. And I was a theater and American studies double major. Um, But I, and I did my um, senior thesis, which was directing three tall women. And the day after the final performance, I like sat down to try and catch up with all the homework that I had been ignoring um, for weeks because of just rehearsals and tech and everything. And I just had this realization. I was like, I don't want to, read like about race relations in England what I really want to do is direct like forever and just keep doing that and it was just sort of this like aha moment that I had even though I'd been like sort of like intellectually thinking like I am a theater major I want to keep doing theater that was the moment where I was like I am all in
1: so if all of these artists decided to be all in then I would assume they had a hope of what their dream would look like Meaning a goal comes with expectations, right? My friend Jacob Padrone, Long Wharf Theater's artistic director, had this to say:
4: I think that I always had in the back of my head that I wanted to be an artistic director, even though I didn't necessarily know kind of all the sort of ins and outs of what that meant. I knew that the job was about being in service to an institution and in service to a community. Lee
3: had this to say: Of course, you don't have any idea what a life in the theater is really going to look like. You know, you're picturing it's just uh, at least for me, I was like, uh, "Yeah, it's just like one big Tony Awards, right?" Um, you know, it's like that's all it is, and and in some ways, it it's it's nothing at all like what I thought, and in other ways. You know, being able to see incredible theater every single night of the week, um, the fact that I would complain about that, um, you know, is, I mean, certainly right now, having not seen any theater in six months, that feels like an unbelievable luxury um, to go back to that life. But if I think about pre-pandemic life, um, you know, the ability to see incredible theater to be part of a community that every night gathers in dark rooms to watch each other's work that, um, is, takes itself, um, seriously that is, um, uh, filled with um, really different, interesting people from all over who have all heard the same siren call to come to New York and do this thing. I mean, that, that's what I sort of in my wildest dream imagined, you know, of course, in my, in my fantasy of it, we all lived in like much bigger apartments and we had much more free time to hang out, um, you know, and that kind of thing. And, and, um, we all spent a lot more time, um, you know, going to Tony awards and things, but like, that, you know, that piece of it um is, is of course just a total fiction. There's I mean, I can say honestly that I have only ever really changed for opening nights, like in a public bathroom, mostly at a Starbucks or like in a bathroom at a theater where I was like also rehearsing the next thing. Like I mostly feel like theater is you know, a, a, just a roller coaster of, you know, from uh, humiliation to uh, less humiliation, as opposed to, you know, just like it being glamorous, it's, it's really um, so much hard work. And I think that that is the part that you can't picture at all. Um, you know, as I got older, I think what I wanted was to feel a sense of community I wanted to feel that the writers that I worked with would want to work with me again. And so when I started to work with writers, um, uh, sort of in repeat uh, in repeat ways, I, I started to feel like that was a real mark of success um, when people that I had worked with wanted to go through a process like that again. Um, you know, I think when you're younger, you're starting out, success looks like something. It looks like um, Tony Awards or it looks like critical success or it looks like reviews or it looks like, you know, people have different pictures of what success looks like. And I think what started to become clear to me and certainly, what I feel like now, um, and certainly feel like in the face of um, the pandemic and the really important um, social justice work that is happening right now, and the anti-racism work that we're, you know, many of us are very deeply engaged in, is that that success feels like a sustainable life that feels like a life that is full of um, all different kinds of points of view and different kinds of um, stories to tell and the ability to see different stories on stage to support um, colleagues. And it also feels like the life that was pre-pandemic, the pace of it um, was was unsustainable and not um, actually, it didn't work for anybody. And I think part of the work of undoing the white supremacy inside of our business has been to really look at things like rehearsal schedules and tech schedules and who is it benefiting and who made up those rules and why do we have to do it in that way? And something that I've been, you know, that I've certainly grappled with um, in my own ways over the course of my career has been, I, I have tried to undo some of those, um, what have felt to be very, um, intense, uh, tenants of our business, um, uh, in relationship to the way that, um, that white men and particular white straight men are centered in almost everything. And, um, I did a a play a few years ago, a few years ago called lifespan of a fact. And, you know, I had the first all female, um, design team on Broadway and I had three of the five designers were breastfeeding. And, you know, it was, I asked if we could have a refrigerator in one of the empty dressing rooms in the theater so that people could put their breast milk in there. And literally the production manager was like, nobody has ever asked me for that. Um, So definitely, and I was like, well, Obviously, women have been breastfeeding while they're designing shows. So, this is not like a new thing. But I thought, like, this is in the most basic way an example of who came before, who's always had the power, and how hard it is to disrupt. Because I fought like fucking hell for that mini fridge. And I gave up my space so that the women could do what they had to do, which was completely fine. But I was like, this is, this is, and this is a tiny, tiny, tiny speck in an ocean of issues, um, that have to be undone. Um, and, and certainly, uh, gender parity is a piece of it. And, um, and and the racial parity piece is exponentially more complicated, more difficult, um, and uh, and way harder uh, to undo because it is so systemic, not only in our industry but in our culture and in our country.
1: Sahim had this to say.
4: I guess I would say that the image I had was one where I had a creative freedom to be able to work on projects that really meant a lot to me and that those projects would also provide for me a sense of financial stability, that I'd be able to survive as an artist. And, you know, it it, it dawns on um, on an artist, pretty early that it's it's precarious. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're acting, if you're directing, if you're designing, if you're stage managing, that that a life in the theater is one of great uncertainty and you no know, job stability. And so I knew that going in, but I think that the success for me looked like being able to to direct. Um, and only do the projects that I was passionate about, and not have to do projects, because I had to do them, or I had to do them to make money, and that I would be living um, just comfortably um, as a result. So I think, yeah, those were my measures. Colette said this.
6: I don't know if I thought that much about it. I think I just thought that like, I would only direct, like, that's how I would make money. And that's just that that, that was it. But I would just be a director and get to direct. I don't think I had a sense of the work involved or how or the sort of hustle involved. I just thought like, I'm going to be a director and I'm going to direct and that is all I'm going to do.
1: I asked the group if there was anyone who ever talked to them about the financial realities of a career in theater. And this is what they had to say, starting with Saheem.
4: No 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 uh we didn't have any of that i and, and i remember reflecting after undergrad especially being like you know no one ever talked to us about the nuts and bolts of it i mean we did i went to northeastern um it was a fantastic theater program but it was very kind of practically focused and aesthetically focused so we didn't have any kind of like um uh, schooling in terms of like, this is what the real world is like, and this is what you have to do when you go up there. I don't know if they were afraid <laughs> to tell us because maybe we would change our majors or, um, or it was just like, the you know, just the, the focus is more um, uh, kind of intellectual and, and creative. But no, no one ever had the, the talk about the finances and just um, uh, kind of making it at any point, even in grad school, I don't think we talked about that.
5: Gabriel had this to say, no and i can speak for both my undergraduate and graduate careers <laughs> um other than to say that there is, there was this myth of um, paying the dues of a certain kind of suffering of a certain kind of hierarchy that doesn't really exist in our field that you would you know you would toil in poverty and obscurity and then someone would come see your 11 p.m. saturday night reading at you know, Dixon place are here. And then, you know, you would be discovered and you would be moved up the chain. And, and, you know, that, that myth was told to me multiple, multiple times by multiple, multiple people. Um, So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious conversation about artists and their finances and, and, and how we might effectively manage that. It was um, you're going to be poor you're going to suffer. And that is part of your journey. You know, um, I think one of the things, Danny, I'm realizing now as we sort of deal with the calls for social justice and equity is, is a lot of that stuff that I was fed at 15 at 18 at 21 is deeply ingrained in me. And so now when people are starting to question why we are doing 10 out of 12s, because that is clearly sweatshop conditions, um, you know, for someone like me, I did my first um, 10 out of 12 when I was 15, you know, and it's just the way the business works. And it's only been when, you know, smart people like Stephanie Ibarra shake my tree and say, Have you really thought about this? that I go, Oh, of course we shouldn't be doing it that way. Of course we shouldn't. So some of this has been so ingrained in me this, this um, m- mythology of, 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 artistic poverty being a noble endeavor that I've had to really shake myself hard to free myself from. Yeah.
1: I mean, I'm, I'm obviously younger than you, but even I am going through a very similar experience because I feel like I was fed the same things you were fed only, you know, 15 years ago and, and had to go through, felt like I had to go through the same sort of like hazing in my twenties and um, that you did. So, I mean, we're talking about a really long-standing <laughs> mindset.
5: I, I don't know that what I wish I had had was a frank conversation. What I wish was there was um, knowledge. I wish there were underpinning. Um, you know, I think there are very few artists who know um, deep details about money management you know, about investing, about the things that I think you get in an MBA or the things that you get as you grow in other sectors are just not knowledge that we prioritize in the arts. And so, you know, I, I ha- would you have been able to talk me out of it? No. But could I have benefited from financial education, um, from understanding about how to um, put these pieces together? Yeah, I think I could have. Um, I, I remember that I did my first professional job. My first professional directing gig was in 1988. Um, but that we had an almost, um, I don't know, um, mafia-like silence around what salaries were supposed to be. And so I didn't know what I should get paid. I didn't know what other people would get paid. And it was considered uncouth to talk about what we got paid. And so then you kind of, I move forward into the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s. And I start to realize as some of this starts to break apart for me, oh, at some theaters, they are paying women less to direct a play. Oh, at some theaters, they are paying less to direct on the second stage when the work is exactly the same as the work on the main stage. Um, oh, look at that. That director's a little younger. So they've decided they can get that director for cheaper. Um, but those inequities have really been hidden, you know? Um, so for, you know, I, I wonder if there had been some financial transparency, even among artists uh, if we'd be having a different conversation. You know, I know as an administrator, there's only so much budget to go around, right? So like there are choices that have to be made, but those choices um, are not always made transparently, you know, they're made um, behind the artist's backs instead of in, in, you know, consult and in concert with them. Lee said this.
3: So when I was in college, I worked uh, at a coffee shop called Primo Cappuccino, and Primo Cappuccino had a cart that they put in the basement of the theater building, starting at six a.m. and um, a couple of days a week, I manned the uh, the Primo Cappuccino, you know, cart um, in my own school of drama. And the teachers, uh, and everybody that I, you know, wanted to impress and delight with my directorial brain would come in in the morning and say obnoxious things to me. Like I'll take a, uh, you know, a half leaded with legs, you know, or like they try and come up with some like cheesy order, you know, and, um, and and then they would put like, uh, you know, a quarter, some change or whatever in the tip jar. And they would say, you earn more today than you'll ever earn as a theater director. And it happened like, and they thought they were being really cute. It happened a lot. It was never cute. Um, but I felt clear <laughs> that even though I was in school to learn how to do this thing, they were clear and wanted to make sure that I was clear, that I would never earn any money doing it. And um, I will say that that was complicated, um, although I didn't much care. And in a certain way, that is the privilege of being young. um, In a certain way is that it just sort of feels like, you get to just follow your passion and kind of nothing else really matters. And that, that sort of gets you through for a while, I guess. Um, but I, I think that I was also, I I had one teacher in particular, Jed Harris, who was my advisor and, um, taught me freshman year directing. And, um, he, he was like, really transparent about how little money he had made um, as um, a director and actually had talked about that the reason why he got into teaching. And I was actually in his first class as a full-time teacher and he just retired last year, which is wild. But um, he had said he, he got into teaching because he needed health insurance and he had never had health insurance. And He was very clear with us that if we wanted to be theater directors, we couldn't be into it for the money because that was a fantasy. And I think it was it was something that he wasn't bitter about. And in fact, I think he was one of those like like um, like in a way he was a little bit of the cliche of like you're not a real artist if you make money kind of guys, which also is, you know, useful in the sense that, um, you don't make any money and you should love it more than whatever the paycheck is going to be, because that's sort of what the, what the case is. But definitely I came out of Carnegie Mellon with a very snobby, like I'm an artist, I can, you know, uh, live on, uh, my dreams or something, which, which I think lasted me for a little bit of time. And then, of course, you get to New York and you're like, oh, I see. I need actual money, <laughs> not just dreams. David had this to say. I
2: would say that it was maybe not spoken, but it was implied. And I think this has to, I went to a school that was a, kind of at the time, now it's a sort of giant, lavish institution. At the time, it was a very scrappy, private, liberal arts college that had a, an open admissions policy, which meant that if you had graduated from high school and you could pay tuition and you wanted to go there and study across the spectrum of arts and communication, you could go there. It was a place for people who had not learned to be great students, but who were, had a great, who were looking for something. And, and and in fact that was perfect for me because that was where i sort of found my footing in my uh, vocabulary and my you know my 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 interests um, but it was scrappy and it was a little underdoggy i felt and i think that you know our training was always what what was there were positives and negatives to our trainings we weren't that slick you know what i mean we weren't and you had a lot of and, and like the 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 i think that while it was never made explicit the vibe that we were kind of given was not demand what you are worth, uh, insist on being paid, you know, insist on being paid. Um, it was also not, the, 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 the we had an easy flow between our school and the theater community in Chicago because all of our professors were, were working professionals and that was the design of the school. There's also a huge and flourishing non-equity scene in Chicago, which is equivalent to, and overlaps with the equity theaters. There's lots of non-equity actors on stage at Steppenwolf and Goodman and things because there's only a certain number of contracts. So it does not have this absolute union cut off the way, this union ceiling that exists or floor that exists here. So you were kind of knew that you were gonna be doing it for love a lot of the time you were going to be working in storefront theater for nothing. You were going to be starting theater companies with your friends and be spending your own money. And you were going to be, you know what I mean? You might get a really good job. You might, you might stumble into a show in which you were paid 30 bucks to show, you know what I mean? And, and that was like, you know, so it was always, you always had a day job, always had a day job. So I think that I, I expected that. Um, what I started to say to my student when I started to teach at the same school in as an adjunct faculty uh, member, uh, which was a way that our chair found to, you know, <laughs> help us make a living after we were after we'd gotten out, um, uh, was was uh, uh, you know, you have to agree to be poor. Part of this is agreeing to be poor. Now, I don't, and that was an absolute philosophy. And I didn't, I didn't, wasn't exposed to be paid what you're, demand what you're worth. I was not exposed to that thought. And never, and if I was exposed to it, I wasn't listening or I refused to hear it. So I must have taken my own kind of possibly lack of self-worth and and uh, uh, um, applied it to that, but I, I still think that's part of it. I still think, you know, like like to to refuse to be an artist unless they pay you seems extreme. As does please take advantage of me, walk all over me, I'll give it to you just so that I can make art. Also seems extreme. The truth must lie in this ever flowing spectrum in between in which you, 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 there's such a thing as, you know, uh, value is such such a thing as, uh, you know, we we joke very viciously about being paid in experience, but I made a million dollars in experience as a young person, a billion dollars in experience. You know what I mean? So, so that was, that was all of that was more, of a learning, oh, that whole time of doing it for free, essentially, was um, more ve- paid for the time now where I'm making money.
0: Well, it was until March. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, uh, sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I have a thought to add. We need to uh, expand our thinking here. This is Nylon, the Associate Artistic Director of the Drama League and the producer of Talking Direction. I truly respect where David's coming from here. I I respect his lived experience and the struggles that he's overcome. I think he is speaking solely to tradition, the way the field has always operated. And sometimes tradition, it perpetuates harmful practices that have to go. Made a million dollars in experience. Is what he said. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm still waiting for my millions if that's the case. You know, these are words of, of someone who's survived a pyramid scheme. Countless artists are told that experience um, will, will reap great fortune. I mean, it's 11 months into the pandemic. Has your experience helped you put food on the table? Has it paid a bill? You know, unpaid labor like internships and assistantships, they largely favor the privileged. It's simply class warfare 101. The uh, advantage goes to generational wealth who can afford the experience and creates a financial hardship for those who are told the experience is priceless. This is how a country, an industry, creates generation broke. An entire generation told to borrow to make ends meet. Or, or maybe, I should say, are, are told to accrue debt in hopes of attacking the principal balance once one enters their desired job market. If there are jobs. How we give access to the American dream within our industry is oppressive. And it must be rectified. You know, it... I don't know about you, but isn't it hard to make art about the oppressor when you're looking at yourself in the mirror? Just some food for thought. Now let's get back to our conversation.
1: David, do you think that advice was specific to Chicago?
2: I, I only lived there, so I only know it was specific to Chicago. You know what else it was specific to was I would see very talented kids get like an office job to support themselves, and I had an office job to support myself. But they would get an office job to support themselves, and they would take on more and more responsibility, and then they'd get insurance. You know what I mean? And then they'd get, and then they'd they'd get responsibility, and they didn't like it, but they were these personable. All of their transferable skills from. You know what I mean? Being a great team member that they had learned in school were explosively, you know, like the actors who work in offices are sort of beloved because they're so charismatic because office people aren't interesting and actors are interesting. like, They loved me in the office. Everyone wanted to know what I was doing. But uh, I would see people kind of, now those people didn't want it bad enough, but I would sort of see people go, geez, I, I do that show, but I can't. I Have to be at work, and I have a big project, and I really need my insurance. Now, this is me telling people that you know, run with scissors or inject bleach into you, which is, oh, don't have your insurance. <laughs> Why don't you come through this play with me? That's ludicrous. But these are the the these are the things we did when we were young. You know, we drank bleach in the old days. <laughs> yeah
1: no, yeah. but I, I I think that's real. I mean I remember when I moved to New York, I was being warned against getting stuck in those positions, getting doing a temp job and then getting stuck in that job, even the like producing work that I've done at the yeah. public or wherever which I've done so that I could make money so right. I could, could direct it was always there was always this perpetual fear of being getting stuck there and then never coming back to like the art you know.
2: so that is new york so so it was new yeah. york too so it's everywhere but i've noticed more in the last year and i and it's i think it's important i think it's important too. the know your value the mika brzezinski uh you know but no the the, the be paid what you're worth uh and uh, i don't need your i don't need your free exp- i don't need your to do your film for experience stuff so that's isn't it that that the extremes, the extremes will get you at all times, and we must be balancing at all times because it's not binary. Everyone wants her to be this one piece of advice, which is demand to be paid at least you know this base salary, and then more because you're brilliant and take and respect yourself, which is you know, not nothing, versus don't walk away from value just because these artists who want to collaborate with you can't give you cash and we've always just got to find our way back and forth between it but so you're so I, cuz I wasn't here I didn't move here till I was in my 40s so I don't really know anything about what being a young person in New York was like
1: now I'm curious how did these acclaimed artists financially survive once they started pursuing their careers colette had this to say
6: I remember after I had this like big realization that I was going to be a director. And then a few months later, I was that I wanted to do it in New York as opposed to Chicago or trying to um, go back to the West Coast where I'm from. I remember going to my advisor mentor and saying, like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be a director in New York. And she was like, oh, that's wonderful. Uh, You're going to need a day job. And it completely blindsided me. I had just not like factored that. I don't know where I was in my mind, but I just hadn't factored in that I would have to do other things while pursuing this very strange sort of mysterious career. I did a lot of box office work. I did a lot of house managing. Uh, So sort of working in theaters, but not doing anything creative. I did that for a long time. Um, and then I had a lot of temping at financial institutions um, like Goldman Sachs and City Group. Um, and then I had a four-year stint uh, working at a private equity firm, and that was my last day job.
1: Lee had this to say:
3: I did a lot of really crazy things. Um, I, you know, temped and I um, worked. Uh, at New York Theater Workshop. I had, when I moved to New York in 1996, I was an intern at New York Theater Workshop. And then they hired me to answer the phones. And most of the next like 10 years, um, I worked in the workshop at a variety of different jobs. I worked in the marketing. I was the assistant production manager for uh, about three months, which was really, that was really like a pity job that they gave me I mean I was so bad at it I didn't know anything about I mean literally I remember the production manager saying to me um I need you to go down to canal lights and um pick up like this thing of lecos or something and I remember being like huh and I got down there and it was like pre-cell phone and pre-internet and I like had to find like a pay phone and call somebody to t- so that they could tell me what a Leco was. I mean, I was really unqualified, but I will say that um, the New York Theater Workshop gave me support at um, a crucial time. I was crew for um, a couple of shows. I I was um, extraordinarily lucky to find my people there, and um, I um, one of my first job jobs that I um, got was I was the PA on the Rent tour. And because in 1996, they had just produced Rent and had moved it to Broadway and they were putting together the tour. And, um, one of my first paychecks was, was being the PA on that tour. And, um, it was, it was a good first job, you know, it was a really good first job. And, um, and then I, you know, I did a bunch of really shitty other jobs. I got fired from a bunch of things. Um, like really the thing that was the, the most ill fitting for me was I was a host for like a lesbian night at the pyramid club. And I got the job because I had been working on a show that had been in the fringe festival, the first year of the fringe festival um, that had a lot of gay content. And so um, I got asked to host this night And the idea was that I was there from like the time the club opened until three or four in the morning, which I guess is what hosts do. Um, I was never really a club person. And um, I was also like, in that moment where, um, I was in my early twenties, but I was also like, just as I have always been like so serious about what I do and like so committed to it. And so I was like in the middle of like, I, there was just no fun to be had. So I was like, you know, it was like 10, 30 or 11. And I was like, I gotta go. I have to, <laughs> you know, I have to like go home and like get ready for a reading, you know, or something. And I'm sure they were like, um, you're really not cut out to be a host at a club. So um that was that was a real one night kind of situation. But um I I think that um you know I just uh I made it work and when I had really lean months um I called New York Theater workshop and asked them what I could do. And they would let me I did telemarketing. I mean I did like a just a bunch of things there and um thank God for them I can't uh, say enough, like they really saved me in those first years, um, and um, and then I started to uh, work with um, a, a number of writers that were coming through there at that time, and um, some of my earliest and most sustaining collaborations, specifically with Tanya Barfield and Lisa Crone, um, both of which came out of my time at New York Theater Workshop, and um, I had a a summer where I was the um, I was an assistant to Andre Gregory and he, I had met him also at New York theater workshop. So, um, it was all really great. And the other really great thing that came out of New York theater workshop is that, um, I, when I answered the phones there, um, I would frequently, or, or leave messages for people on behalf of the theater. I would, uh, I would, you know, leave my name, and then people would call back. And one time, somebody called back and asked to speak to Lisa Verman, and um, and so I I stood up and walked through the office, going, "Does somebody work here named Lisa Verman? Lisa Vermin, Lisa Vermin. And um, and so now, uh, to this day, all these years later, Jim Nicola and Linda Chapman only refer to me as Lisa Verman. So that was the other great great upside to working there. David said this.
2: I only waited tables uh, very briefly, um, only because, and I assumed waiting tables would be the way to go, because first of all you'd meet a lot of cute waiters, you know. Second of all, you'd you'd made uh, there was all that cash, and it's just what everybody did. But I was just bad at it, and it's because I walk funny. I walk very bouncy, and so everything spills. So trays are a problem for David, <laughs> like. If I'd only paid attention in body movement, I might have been a better waiter, but I didn't. And um, uh, uh, so I, so the other thing was temp, temp work was office temping. Uh, so I got a temp job. I, 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 I got, did various temp jobs. Um, I could not type. I didn't really know anything about computers, but there weren't that many computers. This was in the '90s. There were sort of big desktops with email and things like that. Uh, so I did office temping. Uh, And uh, office temping led to, okay, so I office temped for a while, and then I had basically my first big success as a director, which was this, uh, which is 1991, which was a first big artistic success, which is that I did something very ambitious, I did a very ambitious big play in a very tiny space with a million people in it and only a few audience. And I sort of, I harnessed the intimacy and the big nature of it. And I made a lot of big bold choices. And it was a beautiful, beautiful play. It was Women in Water by John Guare. And and I got, and and people and people dug, it, it was a 40 seat theater. There were 25 people on stage in a 40 seat theater. So there was really only, there were less than 100 people in the whole damn building, but, uh, uh, it was uh, it was very well received. The critics liked it, and everyone came, and it ran three or four months. So I suddenly felt like I was, uh, uh, I was, you know, the world was going to beat a path to my door. By the end of that summer, I ended up working in a dog food factory, in a dog treat factory, loading. Uh, load, I, I don't remember why. I think I started working in the office for them, and they didn't need me in the office and then they sent me to the bakery and then they just had me load fact 10 hours a day so i just did this very very abusive labor intensive under minimum wage job i thought a nice come up to getting for getting a little big for my britches
1: <laughs> Sahim thought this
2: so i did some looking
4: and considering of what i would do um and i got a job at a law firm it was a boutique law firm it was two attorneys um doing something called securities arbitration and they were looking for uh, an assistant, like a, like an office manager slash paralegal. And the woman who had done that position had been a theater producer. And so she was looking at her theater network and I think it was some like Yahoo group. Uh, <laughs> this is like a while ago. Um, and and I saw the ad and I was like, Oh, that, that sounds great. So I met them. And so I worked at this law firm for two years, um, balancing out my kind creative endeavors because my bosses were fantastic. They they said that basically they didn't care what hours I kept as long as I got the job done, as long as I was in the office from time to time. So I was working in a law firm while I was, yeah, like meeting playwrights and going to the theater and having this fellowship at New Theater Workshop and doing some workshops and readings, trying to balance that out that way. So that's what I set out doing after grad school to try and like um, keep my finances afloat, was to get a job.
1: Gabriel, what about you? How did you make a living when you started out?
5: Not very well, is the short answer. Until I sort of committed to also being a arts leader and arts administrator, there was no consistent income. You know, freelancing is a feast or famine path, and it depends not only on how well you are connected to the field, but also the vagaries of that field of of, of what interests people in that moment and how you are or are not a part of that. So, you know, my income would swing by 50% year to year. <clears throat> and without anything else to fall back on, it was very tricky. Um, what I learned when I, um, I was an artistic director and I have also been a director of marketing and public relations and and had a number of jobs at the Drama League before um, becoming its artistic director is that there is something about being of service to other artists and being of service to audiences that I find equally gratifying? So it it fills that need in me um, that freelance directing also filled, while also allowing me to have a home and have a dog and you know have a doorman and all you know all of those kind of things um, that I um i wanted i i always found the romance of the starving artist the 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 notion that there is nobility in the suffering of artists to be a uh, a deeply problematic proposition you know that that it is something that we do to mask a deeply under-resourced and under-supported field and by romanticizing it we actually encourage generations of artists to put themselves in physical harm you know because many do without healthcare um mental space the the trauma of not being able to you know know where your next meal or your next rent payment's going to come from um, it's it's a it's something we don't speak about a lot but it's been i think for now oh i don't know probably since soon after the establishment of the nonprofit model, you know, in the in the sixties, it's been a part of the culture. I think it's also worse now because we that movement in the 60s also by the Kennedy administration and Senator Claiborne Pell and the founding of the National Endowment for the Arts created a financial framework for this theater culture that has slowly evaporated over time. And so we still have that system but many, many, many reductions to what used to support that system.
1: Thanks to these brave artists for being so honest with me about their journeys, and thank you for listening. Tune in next week to the second part of this series. We'll zero in on the real numbers behind freelancing and how success doesn't always keep you above the poverty
4: line.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode of Talking Direction. Join us every week by subscribing while you're here. Also, let us know what you think. You can follow us and engage with us directly on all social media platforms with the handle at Drummer. Talking Direction is a project of the Dramalink New York, America's only not-for-profit, lifelong home for stage directors and the audiences who treasure their work on stage and films on television and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help theater folk and their families who are suffering from economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in this effort, visit dramalink.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you a part of our Drama League family. Thank you for listening. Until next time.